0: Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Today, I'm very excited to talk with Brent Skorup. This is going to be a very fun episode where we talk about the future, the near future, with flying cars and drones that deliver your pizza and meatball subs. That is, if government regulations don't get too much in the way. Brent is the guy with a vision and a plan to make it happen. He is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome.
1: Julia, thanks for having me.
0: Before we start, I wanted to ask you a question that I ask all my guests: What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't
1: i think I think there's an aphorism that really uh stuck out to me when I heard it actually on a podcast a few years ago that I wish I'd heard earlier in life and it's um, comparison is the thief of joy comparison is the thief of joy and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, I think particularly for, uh, younger people. Um, yeah, I, I remember when, when I was in high school and college, um, you're kind of put in these artificial environments where everyone is, is a lot like you all the same age and, uh, you know, comparison has its role, but, um, too often, I know for me, you can get unhappy in comparing yourself to siblings and, and, and classmates and, and athletic competitors and so forth. And uh, it's, it's something I've, I've taken to heart and I find uh, I'm much happier. I think people are much happier when, when they're not doing uh, uh, this constant uh, comparison and, and score, keeping track of the score between people.
0: That's that's a really good response. I think that's something good that I should probably keep in mind more often, especially like with college admissions and stuff coming up, that's a big thing because it's kind of like one big comparison, I guess. But if you don't think of it that way, then I don't know. I think it's just very helpful in like a lot of aspects of life. So let's jump in and start with drones. So in late 2016, Domino's was the first company to get to try doing pizza delivery via drone. They used a Nevada-based company called Flirty, and they started in New Zealand, I think. So the delivery system hasn't expanded to the rest of the world yet, but people believe, and I believe, that it's only a matter of time. But... Delivering pizza certainly isn't all that drones have to offer. I mean, Flirty says in its mission statement, quote, Our mission is to save lives and improve lifestyles by making instant delivery instant for everyone. We are the first drone delivery service in the world, and we're pioneering an industry, not just a company, end quote. You were the first, not the first, but you were one of the very early advocates for drones. Can you explain what you find so exciting about this new technology?
1: Yeah, there, there's there's a few things that uh, I find exciting. I mean, one one is the fact that it's it's emerging technology, and I, I've I, I work on technology policy, and, and this is an area where I see a, a lot of potential. There's a lot of investment. There's a lot of excitement right now, um, and for for my part, there aren't too many researchers and, and policy analysts working in this area, and so um, yeah, I've, I've seen an opportunity to kind of carve out. A niche for myself, um, so that's one element. But but also, you know, what is driving my interest and in a lot of the investors uh, in the companies in this area are some of the potential social changes and social benefits you could see from from drone delivery. And you you mentioned you know uh, pizza delivery and, and retail delivery, and, and that that would be great in itself. Um, but there are there are companies doing uh, medical deliveries in, in a big way um, and partly in response to the covid 19 crisis you've seen national regulators allow more medical delivery um, so for instance in in china um, kind of the heart of the the covid19 crisis the regulators there uh, allowed more medical drone deliveries and a company called SF Express, which is kind of the UPS of, of China, uh, made reportedly 11 tons worth of medical deliveries within a few weeks um, of PPE and, and COVID-19 testing and, and other emergency supplies. Um, there's a company, a U.S. company called Zipline. They, they've been operating in Rwanda and Ghana for about five years now, and they've made um, tens of thousands of deliveries, um, over 40,000 in, in those two countries. And and these are medical deliveries, long distance, autonomous, medical drone deliveries. Um, so the, the technology is rapidly improving. I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to, to learn some of this, but um, you haven't seen quite as much in the U S and there's a lot of reasons for that, that I expect we'll get into, but, um, but the technology is, is up about ready. And so this is why you're seeing the investment. This is why you're seeing uh, increasingly state and federal officials get interested in this area. Um, and, and there are benefits side, you know, medical delivery, but, but also uh, things like utility line inspections, rail inspections um photography, real estate photography. uh, and, And the technology is now getting to the point where this can be affordable for small companies and even hobbyists.
0: I mean, yeah, that sounds like there's a lot more, especially more than I was aware of, in just changes in the industry and kind of innovations and advances. But in the US, there's there's a lot of new stuff coming up. A lot of companies beginning to embrace this technology. Like Alphabet ran their first drone pilot to, they ran a pilot to deliver packages for FedEx and Walgreens in Virginia. And Amazon and UPS are soon starting their own trials. And New York just approved um, this corridor, this 50 mile drone flight corridor in the state which is kind of a test to see how it's going to work and it's only a test though I mean you've talked about how there have already been so many innovations and stuff and so many places where these technologies are being put to use in like medical medical like fields and stuff and delivery but In the US we're just starting to test it out and it would have been much more helpful if it had already been developed and we could have used it like at the beginning of the pandemic and the lockdown, it would have been very helpful. So why isn't it as developed in the US and just around the world? Why isn't it as developed as it could be?
1: Yeah, I think there I think there are several reasons as as you might expect in, in any industry. I think there's a few reasons. And some of it is, is regulatory. Um, this drone regulation, airspace regulation is dominated by the federal aviation administration, which regulates traditional airlines. They, uh, they prioritize safety above all else, which, which Congress instructs them to do, which I'm sure we we all agree with safety in the air should be the, the primary goal. Um, However, that that results in a, a very cautious attitude, and I, I would say excessively cautious attitude to uh a new technology, a new industry like this, sharing airspace, um, particularly in urban areas. Um, and you know, the the FA, it's it's not the bad guy. They there are champions for the drone industry within the FA, but they have a lot of constituencies. They've got Traditional airlines, they've got airport, they, they have Congress, they have cities, uh, they, they're just pulled in a lot of different directions. And so you have this uh, stagnation and, and this slow, slow action at the FAA. Um, so I, I think, I think this, this stasis problem is, is, uh, is, is the biggest problem on the regulatory side, just the status quo mm-hmm. bias. Um but there are other obstacles to uh, widespread drone delivery service that, that aren't uh, because of FAA cautiousness. It's, you've got issues like America's a litigious society. People sue a lot. And, and, and for small companies, if you're facing the threat of, say, a nuisance or a trespass lawsuit um, or a lawsuit from a state government, uh, that that uh, really inhibits your ability to offer a new service, and, and this is a, a real threat to the industry. It's just litigation. Um, another another problem uh, for the U.S. that other countries don't face is that um, you know some of the FAA's cautiousness is the fact that the United States has a huge amount of airports, small municipal airports. I, I think there are fifteen thousand. Throughout the United States, um, no no other country has has that number of, of small airports, and so um, the the FAA has to make sure that existing aviation users are protected and and have their voices heard. Um, so, and, and and this is this is all you know on, on the public policy side, and then you of course you have um, just financing and COVID and economic response, you've got, you know, kind of business and, and demand issues as well. So I, don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I mean, this, this industry has a lot of potential. There's a lot of investment, there's a lot of action, uh, but there are, um, there are uh, obstacles in the way, of course. And, and my, my goal as a, as a, as someone working in policy and law is that policy and law regulation are not the reason that this industry has problems. If there are problems, it should be on the commercial side.
0: Mm -hmm. So what are the biggest fears that people have in regards to drones? I know that there are worries about plane crashes in relation to drones, but what are other fears?
1: For a long time, especially 10 years ago, I think this is dissipating, but drones, when people thought of drones, they thought of military drones, um, because that's where they're most frequently used. I, I think that's going away. I think over the years, people have become acclimated to the idea of hobbyist drones and small drones and delivery drones, but there is still some of that sense that this is, um, you know, a, a weapon, um, Another another issue. Every every time I, I give a public talk at a university or law school, it comes up. So I know this is a frequent concern, which is privacy. Um, when, when people think of drones flying to low altitude airspace or making deliveries, they think of the privacy privacy risks as well, um, and and it's 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 a real concern. I, I think I think there are. Um, reasons to not be all that concerned about it. I mean, we have, we have voyeurism laws and, and anti-peeping tom laws and, and and other restrictions on on what people can do on on our private property. So, um, so I'm not that concerned about it. I, I hope in time that those concerns will will go away. And you see states acting when when states and local governments do act for drones. It's often responding to these privacy issues. And so states are, are acting and I think mostly in a, in a beneficial way. Um, and then I would say the, f- the final big concern for, for members of the public that I've found are noise, noise concerns. Um, you know, drones, particularly the, the large drones can be quite noisy. Um, it can be an annoying sound. And I think, Litigation over nuisance and, and noise uh, concerns could be a, a threat to the industry.
0: Do you think that we're just gonna have to? But aren't there aren't there laws that like you can have a certain amount of noise? Maybe if there was like a restriction, well, because you can't make a certain amount of noise past a certain hour in a lot of places. So wouldn't that protect? Those concerns, I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, th- there are there are you know these these kind of curfew hours and and, and hours of of day operations, uh, even even for traditional airlines, they, they can only operate at certain hours of the day uh, because of the noise. Um, so yeah, you know, we'll, we'll get there in time. It, it's just this is a new industry with kind of novel uh, novel issues for. Um, increasingly local uh, of local concerns, so I think we'll get there. Um, but but right now, uh, not too many states and cities have have uh, have responded. But but you're right we we do have we do have existing laws and existing policies that would would cover drones as well.
0: So I know that your colleague Adam Thier, is a big. Well, actually, he like writes books about it. So he's very about permissionless innovation, which is a regulatory regime where creators of new technologies and new things wouldn't have to seek out, don't have to seek out the blessing of regulators who are skeptical, risk averse, out of touch, and they can just create what they want, what they think is needed or wanted in society. But what we have in America and around the world is a regime where, a regulatory regime where everyone is cautious, where regulators always go about it in the most cautious way they are use any sort of low probability worst case scenario to kind of block out potential for new technologies and to kind of stifle technological developments. Do you think that permissionless innovation should apply to drones or in any extent, like to some extent all the way, like, what do you think?
1: Yeah, it's, and, and Adam is is a, a mentor and a friend and uh, yeah I, I really his his framework has made a, a big impression on me and many work in in, in these areas this idea that um, instead of a default answer to a new technology being no the default answer should be yes and if there are problems we we should uh, react to those problems in, in a targeted narrow way um, once once any issues arise and so. I agree. I, I like I like that framework. I think it makes sense here. Um, you know, obviously with aviation uh, and and just the safety concerns of the public and you know, of regulators, it requires a, a very targeted uh, response. And, and what I've what I've tried to do in my work is is how do we get to the answer being yes to drone companies because. Too often, the, the default answer is no. And what, I, what I've proposed so that state, local, and federal officials can say yes to drone companies um, is this idea of creating drone highways throughout, uh, throughout communities and, and states. And, and these are aerial corridors 50 to 200 feet in the air. Above public roads, so you're not flying above private property, and you can get away from those issues. Um, and and you're also staying away. These are demarcated away from sensitive locations like airports and schools and, and jails and this sort of thing. Um, and so this this is my attempt at um, showing state, federal, and local officials how how they can embrace permissionless innovation in this area, which is open up these millions of miles of drone corridors that that uh, I think are out there, that I think we could demarcate, that don't pose much of a risk to anybody. Um, and so that's that's how I've tried to incorporate that permissionless innovation framework in, into the work I do in this area.
0: You wrote a paper a few months ago where you ranked states based on their readiness to get drone technology into American skies. And you did talk about um, the air corridors over public roads as a way to bring new services and technologies to residents in a safe way. So can you tell us the best and worst states when it comes to regulation of drones?
1: Yeah, as, as you said, uh, my colleague Connor Halens and I put out this 50-state report card of of states and their drone readiness. And, and a big factor of, of how we scored states, just briefly, some of the factors, um, was a big one was this idea of drone corridors, of creating aerial corridors. And I, th- I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that many states, uh, I think 21 states, allow uh, state department, tr- department of transportation, or local officials to lease airspace above public roads. These laws are often decades old. They were made for real estate, for leasing airspace above highways for real estate, but um, but nothing in these state laws would would preclude leasing this to drone companies. So so we highlight that. Um, uh, another factor for states is. is is whether they have a drone advisory committee or some sort of task force working on drone policy. Uh, some states have this, and, and so they they get a higher ranking if they do that because they'll be better positioned to have a drone industry. Uh, looked at Axios had uh, a report about drone jobs throughout the nation, and so we incorporate that d- database into our score. Um, and so we ranked all 50 states, and... And uh trying to remember off the top of my head, so North Dakota came on top, uh, and, and actually for, for those working in the drone industry, it's probably not too surprising. North Dakota is, is known as being an innovator in this area. They, they've, uh, they're participating in one of the federal pilot programs for drones, and, and they're doing a lot of good work. Um, some other states near the top, Arkansas, Vermont, Texas, California... North Carolina, Oklahoma. I think that's most of the top ten. Um, that that under our our scorecard are are doing well and are well positioned for a drone industry. Uh, near the bottom, I I, I don't want, yeah I don't want to call it states too much because th- this is a very new industry for everyone, and I don't I don't think there's any shame in in being low score at this point. Um, but mm-hmm. it tended to be states in the southeast. Um, for, I, I'm not sure exactly why, but it tend to be some States in the Southeast.
0: That's interesting. (laughs) So I want to kind of shift gears and talk about cars, driverless and flying cars. So my first question is kind of similar to a question I asked about drones, which is the fact that driverless cars could improve and save so many lives so Why aren't we more advanced in implementing them in our society? I mean, I know there's like a lot there. There are a lot of like safety concerns and things that have to happen, like roads need to be fitted with sensors and stuff like that, and that might be difficult to do. So can you talk about what needs to happen both on the technology side and on the regulatory side before we can see driverless cars on our roads?
1: Yeah, dr- driverless cars, much more than drones, I would say. They, they have technological issues that, that need to be solved before they can be a mass service. Whereas, whereas drones, uh, there, there are fairly extensive uh, drone delivery services today and, and drone services today. Uh, autonomous vehicles uh, on the roads... Um, they, for a lot of reasons, they're just not at the point where we can have mass deployment. Um, and the companies will, will tell you, will tell you this, that, uh, they're, they're just not ready for widespread deployment. And, and the reason for that, I think it, it's, it's simply a matter of the fact that we have tens of millions of vehicles on public roads, um, and and that's where self driving cars will be. Whereas in low altitude airspace, it's essentially clean. I mean, there, there's you know, w- with a few exceptions of you know some helicopter trips and so forth. Low altitude airspace is almost totally clean, so you can you can have a fairly um, a fairly basic autonomous system can do the straight line flights for drones. But obviously, with vehicles on the roads, you're, you're dealing with a very complex area. You've, you've got, um, you've got other cars, you've got drunk drivers, you've got children running around, you've got animals running around and, and self-driving vehicle systems have to be prepared for all of these, uh, very complex and very rare circumstances. And, and there's just nothing like it when, when you're in low altitude airspace. Um, so i i think you know i i i'm i'm excited by the potential of autonomous vehicles on on the roads um you know, i think i think uh in the short term uh there, there's there's a company called neuro there's probably some other companies doing this but they're they're making uh small basically golf cart sized autonomous vehicles that do grocery deliveries and and the benefit of doing something like that is you're on residential roads, you're at low speeds. The risk to others is, is, is fairly small. Um, Mm -hmm. and because of the weight of the vehicle and, and the slow speeds and, and you don't have passengers. So that, that removes another risk. And, and, and actually this, this company neuro received, uh, uh, federal regulators eased some restrictions on on their vehicles, so they could they could deploy more on public roads. And people people and regulators more comfortable with that sort of thing. And so that's that's where I see a lot of the action going. And and I hope in time people will gain comfort with this. Companies will improve their autonomous systems, um, and and that will scale up to passenger vehicles. Uh, you know, I'm, as as you probably know the we, we have a public health crisis on our roads 35,000 people mm-hmm. die every year thousands of these are because of drunk and distracted drivers um, and and that's that's it's this health crisis that autonomous vehicles will help uh, mitigate um, and so I I hope I hope we'll, we'll get to the point where we can have mass autonomous self-dri- uh, self-driving vehicles on roads but we um, and there are there are small pilot programs throughout the nation um, but the mass service I think will will take a while.
0: Do you think that having driverless cars on the road will require all cars to be driverless or the majority? or do you think that we can have a mix of both? Or will that still be some sort of safety concern because of like the unpredictability of drivers?
1: Yeah, th- this is an ongoing debate in in self driving car circles. Um, I I think I think we could have a, a mix, and I think we will have a mix for a while. my my own My own hunch is that it 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 will happen slowly and then very quickly at some point. I don't know when that will be ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, but I think somewhere in there there will be this switch. Um, just uh, you know people people don't don't like driving having to be on alert at all times and, and having having that mental load um, and so I think people will switch at some point and fairly quickly once this once this technology is ready um, and I, I think it will be rapid uh, you know the insurance cost alone uh, you know personal drivers won't need insurance anymore that will be on the on the car company or, or the shared vehicle company. Um, and so I think there'll be economic benefits as well. I, I, a few months ago, I looked at just the cost of owning a car. And according to AAA, I, I think it's about $9,000 a year, uh, the cost of owning a car. And if if you could go to a leasing framework or um, uh, a shared vehicle framework, it, it makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. Um, but I, I think... In short, I, I think we'll have mixed, but I think it will rapidly move towards mostly autonomous. I think we'll always have some some drivers out there. Um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, trucks and contractors and, and other kind of uh, niche services, but I think a, a lot of it can switch to self-driving in time.
0: Let's talk about flying cars, kind of similar, kind of different in the Wall Street Journal, you wrote, quote, Futurists have been promising us flying cars since the late 19th century. They may be about to arrive. City dwellers in the next decade could fly from lower Manhattan to John F. Kennedy International Airport in less than 10 minutes. Chicago families could escape the summer heat and shuttle above Lake Michigan to Indiana beaches in less than half an hour. These trips often take an hour or two on the ground, but electric air taxis will will allow for speedy urban travel without the headaches of flying coach. End quote. To me, I think that's pretty awesome. It sounds great. So, can you make your case for flying cars?
1: Yeah, I think I think a lot of. A lot of the things we're seeing in, in small drones we're, we're also seeing in, in passenger drones or, or flying. They go by various names, flying cars or eVTOL, electric vertical takeoff and landing, urban air mobility. There, there's all these names, but I'll, I'll call them passenger drones. Um, uh, there's, you're seeing with autonomous systems. You're seeing with uh, new ways of manufacturing aircraft. You're seeing with uh, electric uh, with with battery improvements and, and hydrogen fuel improvements, um, this this kind of new interest and new investment into passenger drones, which um, would carry between one and, and five passengers usually, um, and and there's there's some exciting developments. And and quite frankly, uh, there, there's one company that kind of leads leads the world. I, I would say. Um, and it's a company called Ehang, and, and they're, they're in China. Um, and they've, they've been flying employees and, and uh, journalists and politicians and, and others for uh, over a year now in their two-passenger autonomous drone. Uh, they, they expect later this year to open up an uh, autonomous drone um, uh, sightseeing tour in, in China, in Southern China. And, and they're, they're, they're working with some European nations to begin, uh, cargo and passenger flights. Uh, so th- this is not science fiction anymore. There are companies working on this and it's, it's not just Ehang, but they've kind of led the way to this point. You've got companies like Uber, Airbus, Boeing, these, these kind of known, uh, global leaders, also work in this area. Um, and so I, I I think for a lot of the reasons that, that drone technology has moved so quickly, I, I think passenger drones will will surprise a lot of people in and how quickly they they come into service.
0: That sounds like so many different countries around the world have so much like so much I don't know presence. Compared to the U.S., at least, I mean, you wrote, "quote bottlenecks for the U.S. air taxi industry are now due to federal and state regulations, not the technology." End quote. So, in the U.S., what would need to happen for us to have the same sort of stuff?
1: Yeah. Well, and I, I yeah, I might, I might sound hard, harsh on the U.S. I I should, I, I should add, the U.S. is leading in in a lot of ways. We have. Our 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 VC community, our investment community in technology, is the envy of the world, and and that gives us a huge head start. Um, where we probably lag somewhat is just gaining permission to uh, allow these companies to test and to fly and access to airspace. This this is changing actually in the last few months. Uh, the uh, uh, the this, the Trump administration, including the military, have made made this a priority. I, I think some of this is this kind of friendly competition, or not so friendly, but hopefully friendly competition with China. Um, a lot of the drone industry, uh, the small drone industry, went to China, and and U.S. leaders uh, want want to bring the passenger drone industry to the United States, and so they're they're making efforts to to do this in some ways that i think are really beneficial like giving giving passenger drone comp- companies access to military airspace to do testing um and so the the us in some way we lag in some way it, it's kind of natural uh just because as i said we we have 15,000 municipal airports and 5,000 uh commercial airports um and that just means we, we just don't have the clean airspace that a lot of other countries do to do the testing and, and to allow these new services. Uh, but I think, I think we will catch up. I think we're seeing signs that um, from the government and the private sector that uh, the, the U S will, will quickly get up to speed. Um, but the fact of the matter is we, we do have a very cautious and I would say an overcautious system uh, and, and time will tell if, will accelerate things. But right now, it, it, it doesn't look good, frankly.
0: If you had to give us a rough estimate of when you think that these technologies will be kind of present out of their testing phase and actually being used in American society, when would you say that we would have drones and driverless cars and flying cars?
1: So drones, uh, self-driving cars, and flying cars. So drones, um, I, I hope within two years we'll have kind of a mass drone delivery service of some kind. You know, there, there are drone services that are a mass service, uh, things like uh, utility inspections and photography, um, even, even agriculture spraying, which has been going on in Japan for 20 years with, with drones, um, but when it comes to delivery, I, I hope within two years we'll have mass service. Um, self driving cars, that's a harder one. I, I hope within 10 years. I think it's realistic within 10 years to have a, a mass self driving vehicle service. Um, for passenger drones, it, I, I think there's two segments. There's kind of Autonomous freight delivery, and I, I think that could happen within two years. Um, you're, you're already you're already seeing some of it around the world, um, and the, the company eHang I mentioned, the Chinese company that's doing passenger drones, they, they've uh, according according to their um, according to their company reports, they they sold sixty of their of their Passenger drones, probably for probably for freight delivery, but they sold sixty last year, and they have orders for a thousand thousand more that they're working on fulfilling. So, I, I think I think freight delivery is is almost there to be in a mass uh, a mass drone service. Uh, passenger, it will take a while. Um, uh, a widespread passenger, especially in the United States, with just given the the things I pointed out before. We just have a cautious system, but I think in other countries, I think within five years, you know, it depends what you mean by mass service. But I would say um, available to members of the public. I, I could, I, I hope and, and expect there'll be some services within five years.
0: That that would be great. That's kind of soon. I don't know. That makes me excited. So finally. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why?
1: Yeah, uh, that's, that's a, a good question. And it's, it's not related to, to technology or anything, but I would say my views on, uh, on healthcare care have probably changed. And um, I don't think it's news to anybody that we have a very dysfunctional system in the United States and, and I have come around to, I, 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 think, I think something like the Canadian model, I, I think could, could work better than our current system, which, um, you know, and I, there are debates, you know, do we, do we have a market system? Do we have a, a is there too much government intervention in, into our system? The fact of the matter is Mercatus, Mercatus put out a paper a few years or a couple of years ago, consumers, are only paying for about 11% of their healthcare spending. Almost, almost 90% is third-party payment, either insurance companies or government. This is not a market system. And, and I, th- I think, in a lot of ways, going to a more Canadian-style system um, uh, could be beneficial. But I, I say that very tentatively. I'm not a healthcare expert, um, but uh, but my, my views have, have changed on healthcare over the years.
0: What is the Canadian system like? Uh,
1: as I understand it, um, there is a it's a universal system. There's a lot of government funding for uh, and support for basic services. I, I think about seventy percent uh, of spending is 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 uh, from from government payments, and about thirty percent, I think, mostly surgeries and, and other things are are privately. Uh, Uh, provided, Um, but it's, it's a unique system. It's, it's a, it's a very federal system. I think a lot of delegate, the central government has delegated a lot of authority to the provincial governments. And um, I I think, I think there's some wisdom in that model, but you know, again, I'm a, I'm not a healthcare expert. Take it with a grain of salt.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's definitely something I want to look into. I've always been like thinking about like I don't know I need to take the time to look into that because it's something I'm definitely interested in finding out more about and trying to figure out for myself like if I could like I mean a lot of people have tried to come up with systems that they think would work and they I don't know either don't or they do and it's just similar like nothing happens I don't know I've always been like, well, if I tried to think about it, what would happen? I don't know. Yeah, I mean. But,
1: yeah, I, I should, well, I should say, um, you know, in my own, you know, brief interactions with the, with the healthcare system, you know, I've been fortunate to be healthy, but it's extremely painful to deal with insurance and medical providers and all this. And um, and when, when even savvy people are having huge difficulties, uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a nightmare for, for everyone. Um, And and some of this, yeah, I should say my, my wife's a veterinarian. And so I, I can, I can kind of see a kind of parallel system of private healthcare provision, which is animal healthcare. Um, Mm -hmm. And and there's a lot to like about that system. You know, they have much lower costs. It's a much simpler um, system, but there are issues particularly with uh, non-payment for expensive Services that I think would be much worse when it comes to human medicine that i just I just don't see a good private solution for um and and uh so yeah my my own interactions with the public health care system and kind of a peek into veterinary medicine uh has has made me more open to alternative uh alternative ways of funding health care
0: i mean that is a good point that when it's difficult to figure out even if you're usually good at figuring out stuff like that that's just that's a point where you need to take a step back and think like why is this not working why is it so difficult it should not be a painful difficult thing and also it's kind of interesting I never thought about comparing it to kind of the animal realm of health because that's I don't know I feel like that's kind of cool like I've I feel like we could learn something there. And I mean, you say you have. So I'm definitely going to look into it. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I'm excited for the future and for all the new technologies that we have to see and to kind of become be, begin to adapt into our lives and stuff. So thank you so much.
1: Julia, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Yeah, of course mm